Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, it's Greg Hoffman from Take Command. And the best part about podcasts is they create a 25th hour in the day. Whenever I'm commuting, metro, car, even when I'm riding my bike around town. Although, in that case, one earphone only. Safety kids. I'm always listening to podcasts. And this offseason, you can get all the insights, all the news, all the analysis, and Logan and I occasionally make a joke or two in the Take Command podcast on demand so it fits in to your busy schedule. Follow Take Command in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your pods. It's time to Take Command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's beat reporter Craig Hoffman. Take Command Podcast from Odyssey Sports. What's up? What's happening? That's Logan Paulson. I am Craig Hoffman. Thanks for joining us again. If you like the show, make sure that you hit like if you're watching it on YouTube. Subscribe wherever you are watching or listening right now as Logan and I dive into the coaches in the NFC East today. The coaching edition of the show, Logan. We've been doing our positional rankings. We got the offense down uh, last week. We got the defense down earlier this week. And so today... We're actually not going to rank head coaches. We're going to talk about head coaches later in the show, but we are going to rank offensive and defensive coordinators, and then we'll talk about why we are not ranking the head coaches. So, Logan, you want to start with offense? You want to start with defense? Because uh, there's there's some really interesting guys on both sides of the ball in this division. Yeah, I mean, I have an offensive bias, so like you know, like I think you know, and I think it's fair now. You know, that used to be like an offensive player bias, but now I think this league is so offensive driven. Like that is like the most important side of the football. And I do think you're getting some really cool defensive innovation, but really like your team goes as your offense goes. So I think maybe we hit on that. I don't know. It's up to you. Yeah. Um, I do think yeah. it's interesting because uh, if I'm looking at this correctly, there is one coach in the division who you played for, and it's actually one of the defensive coordinators. Yes. However, uh, I do agree with you that that the offense – I mean, they're the ones that dictate you have yeah. the football. Um, and we talk a lot about how defenses can try to flip that on its head and try to dictate to the offense. Um, but ultimately is the offense that is making the decisions and the defense that has to react. So let's start on that side of the ball. So in Dallas, you have Brian Schottheimer, who will not be calling plays. Mike McCarthy yeah. will be. You have Brian Johnson in Philadelphia. You have obviously the enemy here in Washington. Then you have Mike Kafka and kind of Brian Dable, uh, yeah. who obviously has a very heavy influence in New York. Um, Simple enough. Where do we start uh, if, we're, if we're saying who are the best guys? This, this is actually hard because um, a lot of these guys haven't been doing this in their current roles for very yeah. long. EB, obviously, with Andy Reid and, and KC. Schottenheimer's been in the league forever. Uh, but for Johnson and Kafka, like younger guys in, in the league. Yeah, yeah. So I think I would say, like, you know, again, I'm going to go back to, like, experience. You know, and if I'm going best offensive coordinator slash head coach in the division, it's probably Kafka and Dayball. Like, just – what they did last year was kind of what Sirianni did, like Jalen Hurts' first or second year. Like he just they, – they both those guys working together created an offense that elevated personnel, that allowed Daniel Jones to, you know, maybe not be the best quarterback in the division, but at least be a guy that you're like, now you have to pay him. And I think that's good, and they seem very confident in him. And I, and I, I really – every game that I watched of the Giants last year, I thought this is a team that's, um, again, doing some cool stuff schematically. 
and they're also doing some cool stuff from like a coaching execution detail standpoint, you know, like there's a reason that you can be so hyper efficient. Like, you know, I think we talked about this. They were a team that really struggled to find big plays, but they won games, um, you know, being really efficient with their third down with their three-step drop stuff with their quick game, with some screen stuff, finding ways to get Saquon the football. Um, and you aren't as efficient as they were without being hyper detailed. So I think as, as kind of lackluster, you know, maybe their total offensive production was last year, you know, like they're not, I think they were like a top 15 offense, maybe top 20 offense, like nothing crazy, but they were able to win football games. And I, I think that that coaching staff deserves a ton of credit because one of the ways that I grade coaches is like, how good are your offensive players? And then how good are you um, in terms of getting production out of them? And last year, like we've talked about, their offensive line was not good. Their, their skill position guys, I think they overperformed. But again, like I think you look around the division and say, like, we still think that they're the fourth group in the league, in the division, right? And that's how yeah. we felt last year. So for them to take that group and elevate the way they did, I'm like, they have to be the number one, uh, you know, kind of. And it's, yeah. and it's, and it's weird because it's, it's not just Kafka. It's Kafka and Dayball working together, obviously. But I think both those guys kind of putting their heads together lead to a really good offensive uh, performance. So I think we should even take a step back and kind of double click on what you just said. Like what, what is even the rubric here, right? Yeah. For me, what makes a good offensive coordinator is someone who understands their personnel, uses it well, yeah. and does that within a larger team concept, right? Um, meaning like you understand that you're playing a long season. You understand that how you play and your efficiency offensively affects the defense. Um, you understand who your playmakers are and there's a concerted effort to get them the ball specifically in key moments. You insulate your quarterback, you insulate your offensive line. Yeah. Like there's, there's a real understanding or, you know, if you're Philadelphia and you have the best offensive line in football, you use that to your advantage. How do you, how do you put your players in good spots, give the best players the most challenging stuff that is also the most rewarding and still get production out of players who are not as talented by creating opportunities for them and leverage those opportunities for your better guys. So it's this big cyclical, you know, yeah. run to set up the pass, pass to set up the run, use your star players as a decoy, but also, you know, setting up something in the first quarter uh, to use in the third quarter. There's like all these things that you could get into examples of, but that's kind of to me like, the big rubric here is, do you understand who your personnel is? Do you use them wisely? And you do that within the larger team concept of what you're trying to be in terms of an identity as a football team. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, I, you know, I think this Kafka Dayball collective is elevated by the fact that um, Philadelphia's offensive coordinator is new. I think if Philadelphia's offensive coordinator, coordinator had stayed and um, Sirianni had been the head coach again this year, I think they would probably be number one. Because talk about a team that does that at a super high level with great personnel, it's Philadelphia. You know, like what they did with Jalen Hurts in terms of really making an offense for him. You know, like, and I, we've talked about this before, I don't think Jalen Hurts is necessarily a system guy. But, you know, they they developed this really innovative RPO system, you know, like that was more than just uh, it's kind of like what um, what I was doing, not I was doing, but what Houston was doing in 2019 with Deshaun Watson. It's the, it's an RPO with a zone read, kind of this amalgamation of two really challenging concepts for the defenses to handle. And I thought they, they kind of took it to the next level in the same way that like Kyle in 2012 with the zone read stuff with Robert elevated the zone read stuff to a level that no one had ever seen in the NFL before. 
I feel like um, Sirianni and that offensive staff last year did the same thing. And so if they had been here, if, if I forget the gentleman's name. He's yeah, Shane Steichen. Shane He's Steichen. now in Indy, yeah. Yeah, if Shane Steichen had still been here, I would say Philadelphia would probably be number one, right? Just because of what they did going to the Super Bowl week in, week out. You know, the quarterback sneak stuff they did, like the the run stuff they do with the quarterback and the detail again, which with, with which they kind of install an approach, they'd be number one, but they're gone. So to me, Kafka is the next group and a, a little bit because they're kind of the low definition uh, version of, of that, right? They, again, very innovative with the pen in terms of putting their guys in good positions to be successful. But I think the other thing that you didn't necessarily mention in your rubric is the detail. Yeah, right? that is was the, the thing I forgot for sure. Is, is the detail that they're coaching it with, like the splits, the, the, the precision, the timing, uh, the trust between the quarterback and the receivers, the... Uh, again, the layering of plays is a huge element. And so, you know, I remember last year doing some breakdowns, you know, uh, I, like for some of my clients, like watching like, hey, you know, in this formation, like they're 90 percent, whatever. And you look for those tells and you watch a lot of film, and you're grinding the tape. And I just was like, man, they do such a good job of right when you think you have something on them, they have a variation off of it. And so they deserve a ton of credit. And so to me, they're number one uh, because I think they're the best coordinator that is still around right like everyone else is kind of in in flux and up but i think they would probably have been number two if philly staff had stayed so i'm um, really excited about what they're doing and i think for me that the second group now is a guy that i think i'm probably a little bit biased towards but it's eric Bieniemy. like i think i'm just and it, again we we've, we've seen him you and i have been to practices we've seen the detail we've seen some of the things that um get you excited about offensive play callers right and Again, it's so like this. I think you sent me this, Craig. It was like basically saying like everyone runs the same stuff. It, yes. The thing that separates a good coordinator from a bad coordinator is one is kind of that feel, that je ne sais quoi, that magic that they bring. But also the thing that separates is the detail that they bring in practice. And EB has been incredibly detailed and he makes the concepts through the details come to life in a way that gets me excited because it reminds me of Sean or reminds me of Kyle or reminds me of these really innovative offensive minds that we've, that I've played with. And so to me, it has to be EB at number two. And again, it, again, we're biased because we've seen it. Maybe I would feel the same way about Shane Steichen and Mike McCarthy. I doubt it, but maybe I would if I was watching their practice every day, but EB has just been that good during the OTA minicamp period. And I can't wait to see what he brings for a training camp. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think that that detail to flesh that out a little bit, like this is a league of inches and yards. Yeah. And like, that's something that really hit me when I was covering the team and I started to really watch a lot more tape is like, you'd watch the end zone angle of a crossing route and you realize every single time that ball is going one inch over a defensive lineman yeah. outstretched arm. And it is, you know, in a yard wide window through two linebackers. And like, that's every slant, every crossing route, every everything, every screenplay is that close yeah. to being a pick six the other way. Like, so the the details of timing, the details of uh, splits, the details of, of breaking at nine yards versus ten, like those things matter, and and are a one yard difference either between like good or great of having a yard of separation that you can run away or getting tackled on the catch or one yard the other way of a pick six or an incompletion. And like it, that, that level of detail 
is required for the highest level of offense. And obviously Eric's done this in Kansas city with extremely talented skill players and Patrick Mahomes who makes, makes yards appear out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that attention to detail is a hundred percent right. And we saw how that, you know, kind of pristine accuracy and execution can elevate even inferior skill guys in New York last yeah. year with what mm-hmm. Dayball does with what Kafka does. And with Dayball, like if you want to throw it back to where was he before he was in Buffalo with yeah. elevated skill guys and they had one of the best offenses in football. And he and so elevated see, Allen though. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, he, you like see, to your point. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you just, you see it, right. You see the impact it has. If you have good players or great players, it gets the most out of them. If you have, um, average players, let's call them, you can win with them because you have that level of detail. And I think you're hundred percent right that Eric Bieniemy has that style and attention to detail and coaching. And I think with Rivera, he has been given the leeway to run things exactly how he wants to, to ensure that that gets across to the players. And I think, you know, obviously they have the skill talent to get here. Brian Johnson, that said, the offensive coordinator now in Philadelphia was the quarterback's coach last right. year. Um, and in Philly, we saw that same detail. I mean, Steichen obviously was a huge part of it. He was the OC. He got a head coaching job at a fairly young age um, and, and was clearly impressive in interviews. To do that, he was coveted not just in Indy, but in other places. Um, but because we haven't seen it yet, I, I tend to agree with you that even though EB is doing it for the first time without Andy Reid as an OC, I'd probably put the enemy second. Yeah, and I think the thing, you know, with um, Brian Johnson that, that kind of, and again, this is <clears throat> this is my own bias, I think, a little bit, is when I've been part of teams who've hired in-house, you know, they haven't, the uh, they've said, we want to keep the same offense, we're going to hire in-house. They don't always hire the best guy. Now, I will say Brian Johnson's resume is very good. He's been OC at the college level before. He's been a quarterback coach. Those are all really high things that I think are very, very valuable, but you know, sometimes you're saying, oh, we want to just keep some continuity. We're not hiring the guy that's that's bringing that EB level of detail. We're not bringing we're not making sure we retain Sean McVay when a new coaching staff comes in. You know, what I'm saying like there's a level of detail and a, a, a level. Of, there's something about a good OC, man. Like just in, I'm thinking back on my my career. Um, you know, one of the best guys that I played for is someone that you probably never heard of is uh, what's his name? Kelly in uh, Houston. And he had this obsession. But he wasn't like a like a grinder. The uh, the head coach at the time, um, he was in uh, New England for a long time. Romeo uh, Cornell. No, no, the that's the defensive coordinator. The he's the he's a new OC. Oh, uh, Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien. He was a he was psychotic with the details. Yes, psychotic, and so it allowed uh, it allowed Kelly to be like this super detailed, really great great communicator in the field room. And then Bill O'Brien was in there just grinding. The you know just like hey this isn't good enough this is and and the offense was really good you know it was excellent when he was there so uh, I just think like sometimes you need to have that strong hand and maybe Sirianni's that guy that kind of makes sure the detail stays there you know everyone says Brian Johnson's a great communicator he's got the the chops to be a good OC but you need someone that's a little bit obsessive a little bit you know compulsive like that's how Kyle was man Kyle was super compulsive I think that's one of the reason reasons why that staff is so successful is because everyone got that kind of like every detail matters when you're coaching it. And so, um, so I, again, we don't know, I don't know that much about Brian Johnson, their OTAs. I have a, I have a client that's down there. We talked a little bit about their OTA period. It was very, very, very vanilla, you know, kind of very veteran savvy, very, very veteran friendly, 
which makes sense. They just were in the Super Bowl, right? Like, mm. take care of your old guys. Uh, so they haven't shown a lot. They haven't done a lot. Uh, but I do think that um, he, his pedigree is one that makes you say, if anyone's going to be okay with the personnel they've got, with the head coaching, uh, with an offensive head coach who's still kind of in the fold there, they're going to be okay. So I'd say we don't, we're going to put him third, but he could very easily be, you know, first or second, depending on how things go. I, maybe you disagree, Craig. I don't know. No, I don't, I don't disagree with that. Um, and shout out to, to Tim Kelly. Who was the Tim the Kelly? Thank, good job, Tim. Uh, excellent. He was uh, initially hired, I think, as a quality control guy. Yeah, he worked he his way all the way up to OC. Just grounded out, awesome. man. He's good. He's, he was a really good coach. Really good coach. So that leaves uh, that leaves Brian Schottenheimer, which is uh, interesting because Schottenheimer's the most experienced by far. Yeah, um, like he's been coaching in the NFL since you know some of these guys. I mean, EB. Maybe he was coaching by then, but I think EB was still playing Kafka. Def- I mean, Kafka's like yeah. my age. Yeah. Um, I think he was at Northwestern when I was at Syracuse. Um, he was playing. Oh, really? I was not. <laughs> um, and then Brian Johnson was actually uh, a freshman at Utah when Alex Smith was the Heisman Trophy winner. Oh, wow. So 2004, uh, I believe, is when that was. So Schottenheimer started as a coach. Uh, for the St. Louis Rams as an assistant in 1997. Uh, he's actually been in Washington. He was here in 2001 as the quarterback's coach. He was the OC most famously uh, in the Rex Ryan, like New York, Mark Sanchez teams, mm-hmm. uh, 06 to 2011. He was an OC in St. Louis uh, for the Rams before going back to college and then making his way uh, back to the NFL, mostly as a quarterback's coach, but he was the OC in Seattle as well, uh, 2018 to 2020. So last year with the Cowboys as an analyst, now they're OC. Um, he does, uh, or he does not have play calling responsibilities, but a guy that I, I don't know, man, like a little bit of Scott Turner vibes, obviously with his, his dad being a former head coach, Marty, um, legendary NFL head coach, been around the game forever as a coach, but has never been around. I'll just say this. He's been a part of a lot of really good teams, a lot of them were defensive head coaches whose defenses carried them while the offense plotted along, uh, whether that was New York with Sanchez, Seattle, and those teams, et cetera. Yeah, and I think you know there, there's a skill in that. There's a skill in understanding that you need to rely on the defensive side of the ball. And I, I think the reason that I'm not that high in them, and I think we are not that high in them in this situation, is partially because of the stuff that McCarthy has said. Right. McCarthy says, I want to run the football more. I want to rely on the defense more. And I I think there is some merit to that philosophy, but you need to keep innovating offensively. Right. You can't take this back 20 years and be like, hey, let's just stick with what we want to do. And I feel like this higher, you know, and I don't know that much about Schottenheimer as a coach. I really don't like, you know, I'm sure he's a really bright dude. He's you, you aren't you aren't in the NFL for as long as he's been in the NFL and and not know a lot about football. I think the thing about the hire is it feels like a safe hire, someone that um, McCarthy knows he can have a lot of like governance over and is going to do what he says. He's not going to like rock the boat and try to be overly innovative offensively like uh, Kellen Moore was, right? Like that was one of the big headbutting issues there is that Kellen Moore was trying to do all this crazy offensively innovative stuff, which I would kind of push back against anyway. I thought he was doing what they needed to do to win football games. And so the fact that Mike McCarthy... He was the most coveted OC on the market the second he got fired in Dallas. Yeah, and so the fact that McCarthy was like, we don't want that here. I want someone that's going to let me... going to 
insulate me, got to do what I want to do is just to me is never a good, is never a good reason to hire somebody. And again, you're, he might be the smartest dude in the room, but the reason you make that hire is because he's doing what you want as Mike McCarthy. So how smart is Mike McCarthy and what does Mike McCarthy want to do? And Mike McCarthy said he wants to run the football more. And I get it. I understand the value there of running the football more. But this in the NFL today, you can't just line up and run the football the way that you used to, right? It's just the, the game flow is so different. You can't leverage your defense like that. One of the reasons that defense was good is because they can play with a lead. They can rush the passer. Like, think about that. They're moving Micah Parsons to defensive end, and you're going to say we're going to run the football a ton. You're going to be in a lot of games that are 21 to 24, and you're not going to be able to rush the passer as much as you want. You know? So I just think it's a total kind of miscalculation. And again, I've been wrong, you know, but this is just my bias. Like having been around offensive football, like you don't want, you never want to go turtle, never go turtle. Always try to kind of at least stay innovating to some level. Like look at, look at New York last year. They, no one would have said, no one would have faulted them at all. They were like, Hey, we're going to run the ball 40 times a game because we don't trust our quarterback. They found other ways to kind of be innovative with that, with that limited offensive structure. And I think that's what McCarthy wants but I'm not sure that he has the, the, the foresight and the staff to support that kind of subtle innovation to kind of help them maintain the football. Now I might be totally wrong, but that's, that's what that feels like right now. Yeah. That's the reputation. McCarthy in green Bay was like this and it kind of worked in a way because Rogers apparently is someone who likes things pretty plain and vanilla and just yeah. is going to rely on the fact that he's Aaron freaking Rogers and you know, his, his vision and his ability to read a defense and his arm strength, like just, yeah, give me the plain stuff. I'll go execute. Um, which is so, for, which is so frustrating because look how good he was when Matt LaFleur was right. there. And but like, like you heard that there was friction yeah, because yeah. Matt would be like, no. And it's like when, um, when, uh, Kyle got to Atlanta, um, and we talked about it with Matt Ryan mm -hmm. that like, and you've told the stories on the, on the show, like Kyle was like, no, Matt, we can be better if you just trust me and we do it this yeah, way. And eventually, right. and Matt goes out and wins the MVP. And so I think you look back at how good Rogers was at that time they should have won more than one Super Bowl. And, yeah. and I think most people in Green Bay would probably agree with me on that. So I, I just imagine these uh, these closed-door sessions last year in McCarthy's office where McCarthy would be frustrated and like Schottenheimer would come in there as an analyst and they would just bitch about Kellen Moore's creativity and now here they are. So I agree with you. Um, I, I And by the way, that's not... I don't know that to be happening. That's that's a figment of my imagination. It just feels very, very plausible. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like a guy that's been around, knows how to do the job, um, you know, will be the the sounding board that McCarthy wants, not the sounding right. board that he needs. Yes, I and think that's it. That's the we'll see. We'll see how uh, how fruitful it is because they are talented. It is a base NFL offense. They will probably have some weeks where they put up a ton of points. But my my guess is the Cowboys fans will be very frustrated by this, and it won't last more than a year or two. Hmm. I agree. I think yeah. So just to recap, we got the Giants at one, right? Yep. We got Washington at two with EB, yep. and then we got Philly again. That I think that that's a sneaky one to me. That could be a much better. Yeah, group. that's just we don't know. It's so it's hard yeah. to kind of have a full evaluation. And then I think I feel pretty good about Dallas being fourth. Right? Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I do think that's going to change quite a bit when we flip the field. Uh, so let's find out. <laughs>
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Hey everyone, this is Brett Boone. Would you know it? I've got a podcast going strong in our fourth year. Tune in as I sit down with my friends, some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment, for a lot of fun and in-depth conversations. As you know, baseball's been my life. It's been in the family for a long time, but it's a lot more than that here. It's sort of like taking a ride in a golf cart around a beautiful track. Join me every week for multiple episodes on the Brett Boone Podcast, available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Take a man podcast from Odyssey Sports. I'm Craig Hoffman. He is Logan Paulson. All right, Dallas came in last in our offensive coordinator rankings. Uh, however, Logan, I do think they probably come in first with Dan Quinn, who is not just probably the best defensive coordinator in the division. He might be the best defensive coordinator in the league. Yeah. And if you look at the last 10 years of NFL football, I don't know how many guys have a better resume than Dan Quinn going back to obviously leading those legendary Seattle defenses to multiple Super Bowls back in the day. Yeah. And yeah. And when, and when you, again, it's like, it's so funny because everyone runs cover three, everyone wants Tampa two, everyone runs these line stunts that they are really, really good at in pass rushing situations on our first, second down, they just do it better. They just do it with a violence and a speed and a, um, and a confidence that, not a lot of teams like when you turn on Dallas tape. Now it's not always clean, you know it is like there's mistakes here and there, but the the like when they're rotating to cover two out of this weird cover three man look and the the, the nickel guys, the the Tampa two player, and it's just like and everyone's flying to the spot, the rushers on the games, they're not running into each other, there's not these miscommunications, it's just like high definition stuff. And I think Dan deserves a ton of credit for that. Now, are they always super sound? Um, in the back end, no, but a little bit, that's the personnel like Diggs is going to do what Diggs is going to do. But I, I think it's just, again, they don't do a ton of overly complicated stuff. They do, they do like two, th- they do three things. They do them really well. They, they, they marry them together really well. They disguise, you know, they disguise their cover two or the Tampa twos to look like zero man, right? They disguise their zero man to look like cover three. And so you don't really know. And I remember when they played, Washington in the last game, it was like uh, the, the game that Cole Holcomb had a pick two years ago um, for a touchdown. You remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Taylor Heineke just had no idea what was going on the whole game. Like no idea what was happening. And then it was like they got one big play, and that was like the whole offense for the for the commanders. And when you watch <clears throat> Dallas week in and week out, they do a really good job of like having a very detailed rush slash blitz package, but also – 
knowing how to knowing what they do really well and then matching it really well at a high level. So I think that um, to me, it's it's easy to say he's number one. I played for Dan. Like Dan is an awesome human being, an awesome coach, an awesome leader, an awesome motivator. Like that's another thing he's excellent at. He's good at building like a a culture and getting guys to buy in at a super high level. And I love Dan Quinn, so that's like an easy pick for me. But I think also despite my personal relationship with him, like the film supports what he's doing. Yeah. So I think when you look at like kind of the rubric, if we take the same step back that we took after, you know, looking at what makes the best offensive coordinator uh, in the division, we take like what makes good, uh, what makes Dan Quinn great. And, and, you know, okay, that's kind of the rubric it's some of the same stuff, right? Like, do you yeah. understand who your personnel is? Do you play to your strengths? Do you cover your weaknesses? Like, I think it's even more important on defense to play to strengths, cover to weakness or cover weaknesses, um, and to be ready. And, and I think that can be both schematically and personnel wise. And, and that gets to digs, right? Like they let digs be digs because yeah. the upside is worth it. And they put things in place to, you know, like the safeties know that he's going to gamble. Right. Like they're cognizant of that. They're coached up to say like, Hey man, uh, Trayvon's going to probably take a couple of risks. Can you try to make sure that you cover for him if he does? Like you see those things, and so um, it's going to be interesting this year. Now that they have uh, Gilmore on the other side, how yeah. they play that, and um, how they're how they kind of use this new strength they have. Um, but obviously, they they've done an, an incredible job of maximizing Micah Parsons the last couple of years. They've done such a good job of of you know covering for when they've had defensive tackles out and, and some of the injury issues yeah. that they've had, their linebacker situation has been super messy and it's hurt them because talent missing hurts. But yeah. I think overall they've done a good job of, of consistently staying in games and, and being competitive on that side of the ball. And um, I, I also think that, you know, we talked about McCarthy's uh, I don't know, lackluster, uh, yeah, lackluster creativity. He's conservative. He's, he's very yeah, conservative. That, that nature. Like, there's a reason that Jerry Jones was fairly desperate to keep Dan Quinn in town. Yeah. Um, and, you know, okay, McCarthy's our guy as the head coach, but like, we want the fire and ice of Dan Quinn as the as the guy on the other side of the ball that can bring up the room. Um, and, and so I I think that you know his just like Eric Bieniemy's impact is now larger than just his role as offensive coordinator. Yeah. I think Quinn has that in Dallas, and and I think it's with all due respect to I think I think we're looking at four good coordinators here. Um, yeah. You know, obviously Sean Desai, we'll talk about at some point in these rankings, has has a lot to prove, uh, doing it for the first time. But like we're talking about four good coordinators, and I think Dan Quinn is is safely number one, which is saying something about Dan Quinn. Yeah, and I, safely it depends. Kind of beauty's in the eye of the beholder, probably. But yeah, I mean they just did a great job last year. They did a great job on, on all levels, and I think that's really important. I think that your comparison to Eb there is really apt in the sense that like he's a he's a culture guy as much as he is an X's and O's guy. And I think when you get guys again who are bought in, care about what you're doing, um, they want to play hard for you. I think that there's a lot of value there. So you know, from a from a scheme standpoint, and I, and I love that he got outside of his comfort zone, man. Like, you know, he was he his his bread and butter was this cover three, you know, very um, I guess kind of vanilla conservative defense, right? You know, everyone everyone the Seattle cover three, right? It was everyone knew yeah. what to do. Like, I could draw it up in my sleep because you saw it so much after they were really good at it in Seattle. It was essentially the same version of like. Um, you know, Tampa two, when everyone, when uh, t the Tampa Bay Buccaneer, Buccaneers were running Tampa two all the time, like they just had the personnel to do it. And so for Dan to kind of say like, this is where I made my money. Like, how do I innovate off of this? 
and kind of come up with a new scheme, I think, again, just deserves a ton of respect. Like they blitz more now. You know, they're more aggressive in terms of... Right, his adaptation over the the years and evolution has been really impressive to watch. And so like, yeah, Dan to me is is number one. And again, you know, he's got a lot of the the horses to get that done. I think a lot of people say, what about Wink? You know, getting it done with less... I just think... I just think there's something about what Dan's doing down there in Dallas that is innovative. It's detailed. It's exciting. You can tell the guys are bought in. It'll be interesting how it goes, you know, as the personnel starts to wane, because that's always what happens, like, because you paid your quarterback, you've got money invested elsewhere. But um, I think last year is a really good indicator for Dan, for sure. All right. So that leads leaves Desai in Philly, Jack here in Washington, and then uh, Wink Martindale in New York. Who do you got number two? Yeah, so I think this is it's kind of a two horse race here. And I think I, I think everyone's going to say Wink. And I think probably Wink deserves it given the personnel. But I also think Wink is exciting. He's exciting to talk about. He's like essentially like the most extreme offense you can think of, you know, like the uh, um, like the Texas Tech spread offense version of defense in the NFL. Like he is doing some stuff that is just not it's a little outside the box, you know, and I think that that um, that is one reason why everyone's like Wink Martindale, Wink Martindale. But I think Jack deserves a ton of credit, man. He came up with some really excellent game plans. Think about, you know, them versus Philly, them versus Minnesota, like, and just able to kind of put his guys in good positions. And again, he's got good horses here too, but it's, it's really good in a different way. And I think as much as Jack is kind of this polarizing figure, you know, for stuff that he says, like he is a, he's a smart dude, man. He's a really smart coordinator and they've been very, very successful. Like, you know, bringing in like Casey Tuhill, bringing in James Smith Williams guys to, and then not losing a beat, you know, like the evolution of Jamin Davis, like knowing when to push on players and when to pull back, like the, the innovative stuff they're doing with nickel and dime coverages, the way they utilize cam curl, the Cinco front, all that kind of stuff, man. It's, it's impressive. And I look at like what they did against the 49ers, for example, and they did a great job against the 49ers outside of like two plays. You know, and the offense wasn't doing anything in that game. So I think Jack deserves a ton of credit. It's a little bit more traditional, I guess, you know, in his approach when you're comparing it to Wink. But I I really think it's like kind of either or and kind of whatever you're thinking about. And the only reason I might give the edge to Wink is just because they had not a lot of talent in the back end. And he was like, we're going to do this hyper aggressive blitz scheme with guys that aren't very good. I don't say they're not good because I think they played well. But I'm going to find a way to coach those guys up and do what I want to do and play this kind of high leverage defense that allows not only elevates our defense, but also elevates the team and our offense. So um, I think it really just depends because I think they're both excellent. So, yeah, it's really hard. Um, it's really hard to split split hairs here because you're you're ranking two very different guys. Like you said, Jack, um, you know, polarizing for reasons that have nothing to do with football. Yeah. Um, I've talked about those on the radio before. That's a different show, different segment. Yeah. But like as a coordinator, as a as a personnel manager. Um, what he did last year was really impressive. Um, right. And by the way, he did it under fire. And it was a fire yeah. that he set under his own his own seat with the things that he said. And then, you know, off the field, he said, and then the Jamin Davis stuff when he kind of lit Jamin up in the in the press. And you're going, what are you doing, man? Like, are you trying? It, like, literally, it felt like he was trying to get fired. But, you know, when it came to the Jamin stuff, he was right. Um, yeah. or at least, at least it worked, you know, yeah. w- whether it would have worked anyway, and that actually wasn't the best approach. You know, that's, that's the kind of, you know, what's that called? Not a false, uh, it's, it's just the alter it's an alternate universe that we'll yeah. never know. Um, but clearly, you know, 
A to B, it worked. And, and I think the other thing too, and talking to guys like Montez and, you know, you, you listen to John and like these guys, these guys respect Jack and what he, the positions that he puts them in and, and how he uses them. I think you're a hundred percent dead on too with, you know, the, the nickel and dime coverages that they use and, and how they've utilized a guy like Cam Curl and this Buffalo nickel stuff. They just figured out how to utilize the personnel that they had, which also, by the way, um, not an accident. I don't think that it matches the way a lot of modern offenses yeah. are running. Like we need to get more speed on the field, but we still need to be solid against the run. How do we do it? We invent this Buffalo nickel where we have yeah. a bigger safety and it started with Landon. Um, and, and then, you know, in, in a way it almost started with Landon as a way to get him to play yeah. linebacker without right. calling it linebacker. Um, but you, you would kind of invent this position that as a hybrid of roles and, and it works and then, uh, it becomes a part of, of who you are defensively. So, I think Jack's really impressive, but like you said, Wink doing it, like the question would be if we're going to rank coordinators, right? Um, and again, this is a, a hypothetical, but it's the best I got in trying to separate the hairs here. If Jack had Wink's talent and Wink had Jack's talent, who would do better? Yeah, it's a great question. It's it's like one of those alternate universes thing, but I think, I think if I was going to say one thing is Wink seems to have like a superpower, like an elite trait. In, the, in his blitz packages, like his ability to consistently just break protection schemes week in and week out, not just of the commanders. I know I've talked about that a lot with like the commanders and, you know, the famous Charles Leno double bump, which we've talked about on the show a ton. Uh, yeah. But he does it every week. He does it every single week. So to me, I want a guy who's thinking about football that way, who's making blitz packages that way. And I know, um, you know, that's an element of that, that Jack has has developed and but it's like Wink might be the best in the league at that, you know, like, and I think yeah. having a coordinator like that with the talent on this defensive line. And again, like one of the things, again, Jack deserves a ton of credit for this too. Like they, he has cultivated an environment from a rush standpoint where it's like, I want you guys to work together as four guys rushing cohesively. I'm not going to work this crazy blitz scheme. I'm going to say like, Hey, you know, like you communicate with the end. If the end gets high, you're going to do this. If you get high, the end's going to play off of you. And when that works, it's almost unblockable, you know? So they've gotten to it in different ways, partially because he's got maybe the best defensive line in football. I'm talking about Jack, but I think I would right. probably give the slightest edge to wink, just the slightest edge. And again, that's team football up there. You know, they're running the football a ton. They're possessing the football at a high level. So they're not leveraging him in quite the same way, but it's just, I don't, you don't see that ability to just break protections the way he does that often. And it's not a knock on Jack because I love what he's done here. Again, super innovative. And it's it's really like a 2A, 2B situation, like kind of depending yeah, on what you have and what you need. But I would give the slightest edge because we have to rank it to Wink. I agree. Um, and we've seen Wink do it, right? When he was in Baltimore, he had elite personnel yeah. uh, and they were very, very, very good. Yeah. Um, Jack, you know, in 2021, that was not great. Um, that, yeah. that year of, of team football for them. So, um, but the year before 2020, they finished fifth in the, the league in defense, obviously making the playoffs as a seven and nine team. So, you know, we've seen it when you're coach long enough, you're going to have some level of mixed results. Jack's yeah. largely been very, very good. Link Wink's largely been excellent. Um, yeah. I would give a slight nod to Wink. We should talk briefly about Sean Desai, um, yeah. who is young, exciting defensive coordinator in Philly. Um, they really, really like him. Um, he comes off kind of the Vic Fangio tree, yeah. which I think is probably, would you say like fan, the Fangio style is, is become the most common in the league at this point? Um, you got guys obviously like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Brandon, uh, the head coach in LA. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, Brandon Staley. Really, um, you have you have coaches around the league off that Fangio tree. Fangio's still in the league, I think, as well. Yeah, um, in Miami, so job in scary, Miami, yeah. right? So, um, you know, I, I think that Desai is very exciting. He's young. He's energetic. He's, um, you know, he's, he's supposedly very detail oriented. I think he could be great at this, um, but he just hasn't done it yet. So when you're you're behind Jack Del Rio, Wink Martindale, and Dan Quinn, um, it's yeah. easy to put you fourth when you haven't done it yet. Yeah, and I think the other thing about him that's exciting is the personnel seems to fit what Fangio wants. You know, I was with Fangio in. Chicago, and I guess Desai was like a defensive assistant. I don't even know that when I was there, so I feel yeah, bad. Not... Defensive quality control coach. Yeah, so he was in the closet somewhere, you know, typing up cards, and I never saw his face. But, um, but I will say the thing about Fangio, like when that's when that system is good, and so basically, like high level, the system is basically saying we're going to kind of buck traditional trends and not be plus one in the run game. We're going to rely on our defensive line and our linebackers to be good enough to play you one for one, and then you have plus one with the back. So like with a seven man blocking surface, most people will play an eight man kind of run structure so that they can make sure they have one guy for the back. But basically what they're saying now in this Fangio philosophy is we're going to um, kind of be one down as a run team and then plus one in the back end. So that makes sense. That's where everyone's going. I mean, Jack does that a ton now. Like that's one thing he's kind of cherry picked some of that Fangio stuff and I, I, it's one of the reasons the defense here is so successful. Um, and so I, when I look at Philly, I look at the personnel there. I'm like, holy cow, do they have the personnel defensively along the defensive line to do that? Because they basically play they, – they're asking the guys to play like a gap and a half. They're not true two gapping, but they're basically playing like right. – basically from like the head of the center to their gap and then to squeeze down the front side gap. So um, you got Jordan Davis, maybe the best two gapping player the league's seen in the last like 10 years coming out of college – You've got Jalen Carter, you've got Cox, you've got all these kind of big hosses inside. They can for sure do that. Brandon Graham can set a vertical edge like nobody's business. So I definitely think they're going to be in a situation where they'll be able to run. So like, we're, so a lot of teams, like for example, Minnesota um, did a lot of Vic Fangio stuff last year, but they, they, had, work. they had some injuries along the defensive line that prevented them from running this gap and a half system. And then it, crush them because then they had to commit more resources to the run. It was a big mess. I don't think that'll be an issue at all in Philadelphia. I think they've got enough really good, like enough high end horsepower up front that that's going to be fine. And if they can detail it up, like it's tough to, to deal with that defense. They do some really fun stuff in terms of, you know, like this kind of cover three match quarters match type stuff that again, Jack is doing here. That's taken over the league. Like if they can get that done there, they definitely have the personnel to execute that at a high level. So that could be a really, really scary defense with some of that innovation. So, No doubt about it. Take a man podcast from Odyssey Sports. Greg Hoffman, Logan Paulson. All right, Logan, uh, we did the coordinator rankings, uh, offensive and defensive. We're not going to rank head coaches, which I think probably surprises people because we spend more airtime on the head coaches than we do the coordinators, uh, I would say, in mainstream media. I don't know if that's necessarily true on this podcast. I think we probably talk coordinators more than anybody that I've ever heard. Um, but there's a reason for that, right? When you talk about the X's and O's of what actually happens in a game, which is where we spend a, a, an inordinate amount of time compared to a lot of people who talk about football, that's that's who's making those decisions. But I do think it's worth talking about like 
what makes a good head coach and, and the impact they do have uh, on the course of a season. And obviously you played for a bunch of different guys in your career and saw different styles, different inputs, guys who were super involved, guys that were not very involved in terms of the details day in, day out. So to you, like what makes a good head coach and, and you know, what are things that you think head coaches miss at the NFL level? Yeah. So I think, you know, obviously like they're a CEO, basically like, like kind of in a traditional form, right? They basically like, if you are a good head coach, You've done a great job hiring a good offensive coordinator and a good DC. And what I mean by that, it's not just X's and O's. You have strong personalities there, right? You have a, you've done a good job hiring a good offensive line coach, good strength coach, because those guys really are going to be your culture builders for your organization. Now, I think there's an, there's exceptions to every rule. Like Dan Quinn, when he was the head coach, he was a guy that was the culture builder and was really good at that, but had Kyle as his X's and O's guys. And he really heavily oversaw the defense, right? So like, from an X's and O's standpoint, he had two kind of stalwart stalwarts at the position that allowed him to focus on that. So I think it's about really first and foremost is making good hires, right? right? And so like we just talked about the coordinators at nauseum, like when you are a good head coach, you are good at evaluating talent. You're good at developing talent in the case of like Philadelphia, for example, like if you're a good head coach, you've had a system in place. So you say, we're going to win football games. We have to know how to replace these guys when they leave. So I think that's part of it. And I think, you know, it's interesting, you know, when we started this, this, this talk, one of the things that stuck out to me is like, obviously, when I got in, the the CEO model was way more prevalent than it is now. Because now you get guys like Kyle, who are basically like the OC, you know, and the head coach, and they and so the way they mitigate that is they have really good people under them from a staff standpoint that allow them to kind of handle the administrative elements, but also be on that side of the football. I think when you look around the division, you get Dayball, who's helping out at offense. You get Mike McCarthy, who's helping out at offense. And you get Shane Steichen, who's helping out on offense. And I do think on some level that that model might be becoming more effective than the CEO model. And what I mean by that is that it just keeps that coach in the fight a little bit more. Because a lot of times when they become the head coach, there's so many other things to worry about. You lose the minutia. You lose the X's and O's. You lose the detail. And we talked about how important that detail is. So you know, with regards to like the head coaches in the division, I think it's no accident that a lot of them are from the offensive side of the football and a lot of them are still helping kind of on that side of the ball, kind of, you know, maximize that position group. So. Yeah. Um, Sirianni, obviously in Philly, uh, now in, in Indy, but same, same concept, uh, for both of them, they will, they will be involved on their side of the ball. Um, yeah, I, I think the other thing too, along those lines is like, that's why you got hired in the first place. Like yeah. Kyle, Kyle Shanahan didn't get hired because he was going to be an awesome CEO and everyone yeah. knew it. He got hired because he's the best offensive mind in the sport. Right. And so if you, and I think I talked with Sean about this and uh, when he was here and, you know, it was looking to the future and, you know, it definitely has been a topic of conversation amongst these coaches. It's like, if I'm as good at this as everyone says I am and the results say I am, why would I stop doing it? Right. Hey, the be- the best asset I have if I'm Kyle Shanahan is my ability to scheme and call plays. So now that I'm in charge, I'm going to not do that. Right. Like that's just dumb. And so um, it does involve hiring, whether it's a chief of staff or like an assistant head coach or like some other person to take care of some of the things that you will not have time to do that like a Ron Rivera perhaps might. Um, but there, there's no rules that says it has to be done a certain way. And to me, like that's, that's what makes a good head coach is in some ways it's the same. Like, are you detail oriented? Do you understand your strengths? 
Do you yeah. know how to cover for your weaknesses? Yeah. It's just what that is, is different when you're a schematic type of person in a schematic role um, versus kind of an overseer. I think the biggest thing for a head coach that's, and there's two big things that are different as a head coach. One is understanding the locker room and like personnel management on a human level, mm -hmm. right? And this is where Rivera is notoriously good, mm -hmm. um, where he understands his locker room and, and who needs to be pushed and who needs to be coddled. And, you know, are things getting out of hand? Do I let the players take care of this? That That's where he's kind of made his hay over the course of years and why I think a lot of players have had a lot of respect for how he handles business. The other thing is where Rivera, I think, has struggled, to be frank, which is game management. Like mm. someone's got to call the timeout. Someone's got to do the challenges. Someone's got to kind of have a feel of when to put the foot down on the gas and when to when to park the bus. Like those game managements around time score and situation that ultimately come down to someone making a decision are most often made by the head coach. And that can win or lose you games. You can do all the other stuff, make great hires, have, mm -hmm. a, have those coordinators have a good game plan. You can have the right people in place. And if you make the wrong decision in the heat of the battle, you can blow the game. And that is that to me is like the last part of it. And that's really, really hard to kind of practice. I mean, frankly, Belichick's been bad at that at times in his career yeah. of when to when to go forward on fourth down, for instance. And it's becoming, I would say, a little bit easier with some of the analytics because you can kind of follow them and generally be right. Um, but as as I remember having a conversation with Sean about, you know, the analytics might say to go for it on fourth down. And this is obviously when he was here, not in L.A., where now he coaches Aaron Donald. But if I'm on my backup, if it's fourth and one and the analytics say to go for it, but my left guard is out and Aaron Donald's on the other side the 70 or 60% is not the same 70 or 60% right. that it would be if I had my starter and that wasn't Aaron Donald. And so those that decision-making ability in-game is kind of the last piece that's really hard to judge uh, for head coaches. And frankly, it's hard to practice because you know, when does that come up in practice? Everything's scripted. You, you have to be in the game to do it and learn from those experiences and hope um, you're learning from doing it right and not not from a bunch of mistakes because otherwise you won't have that long of a leash to make more. I agree. And I think, you know, I think the challenge thing is probably overblown a little bit. Like this, I, I, I totally agree with the fourth down thing. I totally agree with that. That is becoming so, so critical in today's NFL, like stealing possessions, finding ways to maximize that stuff. Um, I think that's, you know, the, the end of game management timeouts probably more important also yeah. in terms of clock Which, management. to me, that goes into the challenge stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, if you blow a timeout because you did, you know, you listen to a player who was adamant about something that he was wrong about, as opposed to going through your process or having a good process in place. And you all of a sudden you're end of game and you don't have that timeout. Like your challenge, yeah. your challenge really screwed you up. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, the only reason I bring that up is because I think like people don't understand, like when you're on the sideline, like you are just, you're waiting for the TV angle. And it's like, does the TV mm -hmm. angle capture something that the player who came off the sideline said, I caught it, I caught it, I caught it. Does it capture that? And so like you're negotiating something in real time that I got, you know, I don't love that like as a metric for coaches, but the other stuff I totally agree with. I think end of game management, fourth down decisions, that type of stuff is huge. And so what I, I will say this is like, you know, Ron has not been, according to you, I don't do enough research on this to know for a fact whether it's good or bad compared to the rest of the league. So I'll defer to you on this. But um, what I will say is that one of the things I love about the EB hire for Ron is that it fills in this, this gap that he's had, right? Like he's got two guys now that allow him to do what he's excellent at. 
And I think that is so, so valuable. So instead of kind of having to micromanage Scott like he did last year, he has, doesn't have to worry about it. He was going to do what EB does. He is such a good leader and has such a good vision for the offense. It allows him to kind of maybe invest more time into some of the stuff we're talking about. And that's like when you are the head coach in that CEO capacity, that culture building capacity, you need to make sure you've got two guys there that let you do what you are good at. And I think now mm -hmm. he's got that. And so, you know, I think maybe, I don't know for sure, but I think maybe there's an improvement in that area for Ron. And I think, you know, like, it's so funny. Like, I think you look at McCarthy in Dallas, I think that offense is going to struggle because he hasn't called plays in a while, right? And like, you lose a little bit of that frostiness. And you, we mentioned the sounding board with, with um, Schottenheimer, how that's going to be really hard mm -hmm. for him, right? But then you look at Dayball, Kafka, that great relationship there. Wink, who is going to handle that defense emphatically, right? He could be a head coach. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the kind of leader that you got there. And yeah. I think you look at Philly and um, Sirianni's in a tough spot because he's got two young guys there. So how charismatic, how do they handle their stuff? How much oversight is he, he going to need to provide? And does that detract from his ability to make those excellent fourth down decisions and excellent end of game management type stuff because he's more worried about other stuff. So I, that's why that's why I think the coordinator hires are so, so important because you got like one of the things I love about Sean when he went to L.A., is he knew he was going to be helping on the offensive side of the football. He was going to be the offensive coordinator, basically. So he hired Wade Phillips. He hired Wade Phillips. Like, and so that just, I don't need to worry about that at all. Like Wade's going to handle that. I can maybe right. step in on a meeting if I want to learn something, but those hires are so important. And that's one of the reasons, another reason why I'm so excited about this EB thing, because that's a dude who's ready to be a head coach and he's just handling one side of the football for you. So now I don't need to worry about the offense. Jack's got the defense. I can worry about culture and then the stuff I got to worry about. So that's why I think that coordinator hiring and that decision is so important. Yeah. Ron, I asked Ron about that, uh, during the spring and he, I was like, so what do you, what do you do now? Basically? And he's like, one of the things that I haven't been able to do as much that I'm really looking forward to is mentoring some of our younger coaches mm. and like coaching our coaches. Right. And so that's going to make everybody better because right. now all of a sudden how you treat those coaches infiltrates or you know filters down into how they coach their position that raises them it raises those players um so that's a really good thing and i think it's something that they've struggled with here because yeah. he has not had these like young bright coaches that are future head coaches on staff and part of that is a lack of development from the coaches right. now he's got eb who we think is a future head coach but like tavita pritchard is is ron going to be able to work with him and help uh mold him into a future head coach. So I think that's, um, that's something I'm excited to see this year and, and check in with Ron a couple times perhaps and see how all of that is going. Last thing I'll ask you about the head coaching position is this, how does it change when it's a young, or I should say, I shouldn't say young versus old inexperienced, uh, versus experience and specifically in one place, right? Like someone who is a first year head coach in a place and is trying to build the culture and establish things versus someone say in Rivera's spot, where you're four years in, you have your people in place, you have your systems, you know where everything is, and you are much more in a management role because you've had a chance to set some of the things in place that a first-year head coach is still setting. Yeah, I think I think the interesting thing about an old, a kind of an established coach versus a new coach is that there's a novelty to a new coach that gets that keeps it exciting and keeps it fresh. So, as an older coach or as someone who's been around for a while, like how do you keep it? How do you keep it? relevant how do you keep the guys dialed in how do you keep the team focused i think yeah, those engaging. are things yes engaging thank you um i think that to me is the biggest thing like because when i'd go to places like i you know i was on four teams my last four years in the nfl and you'd come like the bears are a good example fox had been there for three or four years you could tell everyone in the building 
you know, players wise was kind of like, they didn't dislike Fox, but they, his message had kind of run thin, you know, it had been the same thing for three years. There had been no change and it felt kind of stale, you know? And, um, and I think like, that's something that can be really challenging is how do you keep it? How do you keep, how do you keep motivating guys, you know? And like Belichick does that through fear, you know, just absolute terror. And that's one way to do it. Your um, job or you're out of here. Yeah. Um, Pete Carroll does it by, you know, having a fun, competitive kind of gamified work environment. So there's different ways to get it done and there's no right or wrong way. Uh, but what is that way for you? And I think, um, you know, with Rivera, I think bringing in EB and bringing in that big personality is something that keeps it very, very spicy. It brings up the level of competition on the offense, but it also makes practice a little bit spicier because like, I think Ron said this during OTAs, and I totally agree with this. Like, your offense kind of sets the tempo for you, you know? And so, like, if your offense is flat, your defense is going to be flat. But if your right. offense is up, and the, and I think, you know, going to practice, like, people are going to kind of adopt that personality of EB. It's like they're going to talk a little bit of smack. They're going to be yelling. They're going to be loud. They're going to be detailed. They're going to be competitive. That's going to bring the defense up a little bit. And that is where, that's what makes a good football team. So, I think, um, I think Ron, you know, having been around for a while, has kept it. It, with this hire, that's why this hire is so important. Like, you know, we talk about the X's and O's, but from a culture standpoint, from a Ron standpoint, it's so important. So um, I think that's one way to do it. And when you're young, everything is new. You're exciting. You're fresh. It's the new flavor of ice cream. Everyone's excited to be around. Everyone's a little bit nervous about keeping their job. Everyone's worried about the change. But I think that kind of, it, it inspires some type of motivation in a different way. So um, I think those are kind of the two challenges as I see them from my experience playing. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, that's Logan Paulson, 10 years in the NFL. I'm Craig Hoffman, uh, of course, covered the league uh, for almost that long at this point. Uh, no, five of them as a, a beat reporter. I know I'm getting old. It happens to the best of us. Happens to all of us. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if, if you like if you like what you just heard uh, from that experience and, and how we, we speak about it and how we apply it to today's game uh, and you're new to the show, subscribe. Uh, that can be on Apple Podcasts, can be on Spotify if you're watching on youtube uh and then if you're watching on youtube make sure you hit that like button as well so other people know like hey this is this is good you should watch you should watch this here uh and then we'll, we'll do it again twice next week uh, we got some really cool stuff planned uh so make sure you stay tuned uh, we'll be tweeting out about it once it, it's all locked down but we're working on a couple of things got a couple of irons in the fire as they say uh so we'll see you next week right back here on take command until then have a wonderful rest of your week and weekend